Welcome to Seeking Christ in the Scriptures, the teaching and preaching podcast from McConnell Road Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. My name is Matthew Tilly, and I'm the pastor of McConnell Road Baptist, and we're glad that you've joined us for this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the church, please visit us online at mcconnellroadbaptist.org. We're in Mark chapter 10. We're going to pick up in verse 32. I'm going to ask you if you found your place there in Mark 10, verse 32, to stand with me as we read the Lord's words. I'm going to ask you to do that. As I've told you a few times, we do this out of respect for the reading of the Lord's words. It's not necessarily required in the scripture, but I do believe it is from time to time a nice thing to do, an occasional thing to do to honor the Lord's words. And here's what the scripture says. And as they were in the way going up to Jerusalem... Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for what Jesus has done for us. And Lord, help us to keep our eyes on him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. At this point in the story of the gospel of Mark, Jesus has begun his march towards Jerusalem. And if you know anything about what happens in Jesus' life, Jerusalem is the beginning of the end. Uh, Jerusalem is where he will be uh, put on trial. Jerusalem is where he will be crucified. There are, of course, several events that have got to happen before that. You'll know about his triumphal entry on the donkey that has to happen. All these kinds of things have to happen. There's, a, there's that supper that happens in which uh, he, he's, he's telling the disciples that they're to do a supper like this in, in remembrance of his uh, sacrifice. There's that supper where, that same supper where he identifies Judas as the man who would betray him. So there's all this stuff that's got to happen. But when he is marching towards Jerusalem, it's a signal. It's kind of the sign that the next thing, the next big phase of Jesus' ministry is about to happen. And that's where they're going in verse 32. They're going in the way up to Jerusalem, or in the way going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen there. In fact, he's already told his disciples twice what's going to happen there. If you go back to chapter 8 and verse 31, and in chapter 9 and verse 31, you'll see Jesus tells them this is what's going to happen. Now, he only hints at the details. You go back to those two verses, you'll look. He doesn't really give a lot of detail other than the fact he says, I'm going to be delivered up and I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again. That's pretty much all he says. Now that's pretty revolutionary on its own, but that's pretty much all he tells them at this point. But they are very clear, or he's rather very clear that he is going to die and he would rise again the third day. And as you see here, he is marching, and I really mean that he is marching towards Jerusalem because the image that is given in verse 32 is that Jesus goes before them and they were amazed. You can really get this picture in your mind of Jesus confident and determined as he's going towards Jerusalem. Now, I, I'll tell you, if, if, I'm, if I know I'm in trouble or something bad's about to happen, I don't get a big kick in my step when I'm walking towards it. 
when I'm when I know I'm about to maybe I'm about to have a conversation with one of you and and I know you're not real happy with me I'm not real excited to go and sit down and have that conversation I'm gonna do it because I got to but there's gonna be the part of me that's gonna be man can it can just wait a little bit longer I'm not gonna be that confident in going towards it Jesus he knows he's gonna die he knows he's gonna suffer he knows these things but he is confidently with almost a, an air of victory in his in his step as he's going towards this he is leading them kind of the image in my mind is that image of you know a victorious general on a battlefield and he's leading his troops into battle that's the image that i believe that jesus is portraying here and as those people that are watching him do that it says he went before them they're amazed i mean I would be uh, amazed by that scene, wouldn't you? You're seeing somebody, and, he's, and he just looks like he's in charge, and you're like, I want to get behind that. That's how people were seeing him. But there were also people that were watching him. They says they were watching him, and they were amazed. But then he goes and says there, the next phrase, and as they followed, they were afraid. There were people that were confused. <laughs> Here's Jesus very confident. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. And people look and say, wow, that's pretty amazing. But then they start paying attention. Wait a minute, we're falling behind this guy. I don't know what's going to happen next. Where's he going? How's this going to work out? They don't know where it's going on, what's going on. They've got mixed emotions. You have to understand that Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was written by a man named John Mark. It was largely informed, uh, scholars believe, and I tend to agree with them, it was largely informed by Peter's experiences he told John Mark, here's what I went through. You need to write these things down for everybody so you know about the, the story of Jesus. And it was written largely for a Roman audience. So you've got Roman Christians in Italy at, this, at that time that were, they were under persecution. And those Roman Christians, they were enduring persecution for their faith. So here the Gospel of Mark is written down to remind them, and I believe Jesus' words in this particular section are, are very pointed to this point, to remind them that persecution and suffering, it's not unusual. That's what Jesus has been talking about throughout this whole thing. You just need to be prepared that you're going you're to be up against it. It's going to be a cost. There's going to be a sacrifice in order to follow Jesus. And Jesus has been teaching them that from the minute that your eyes are open, and this is really what he talks about at the beginning of chapter 8 and verse 22, there's a blind man that gets his eyes open to who Jesus is. To that minute that we get to see him face to face and the real scales fall, which is what he ends this section with, is another blind man that gets his sight. We're going to have trials and tribulations in this life. Now he's also saying that along the way, you're going to get some encouragement. You, you remember over in chapter 10 and verse 30, we, we preached about this last week. He says that you're going to receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the world to come, eternal life. He says you're going to get some encouragement. There's going to be some good stuff to look forward to. There's going to be some times, like you're in verse 32, you're going to get a glimpse of Jesus. Y'all ever had that happen? Where you just kind of, you, you, you don't know what, how this worked out, but you just kind of get a, a glimpse of who Jesus is and that he's really in charge of this whole thing and it just does your heart good. Maybe y'all had never experienced that, but I have from time to time, where I just kind of get a sense of, man, he's in charge, and I just feel good about things. Come on, are y'all hearing me? Y'all ever had that happen? And if you haven't, just say, no, I haven't, and that's okay, but I'd like to know you're at least listening to me. And I'm not asking for amens on every corner, but I'm asking for a little bit of in participation here. So let's wake up and let's be part of this. The point is that if, you are, if you've ever had that opportunity just to see him as who he is, as he's in charge, you can get 
enthralled with his power. He can be helpful with his comfort. Those dark, dark times, whenever he shows up, I've had this happen before too, where you're in a, a deep, deep emotional pit, and then just something, maybe it's a word of scripture, maybe it's a song, maybe it's a friend that calls you, maybe something just happens, and you just know right then and there, that's almost like, I think, I remember back when Lee uh, Heber talked about this in, in his opening seminar one time, like the Lord just putting his arms around you. And have you ever had that happen? And you get those times from time to time where you just know he's there. But then there's also those other times that you're walking along the way and it feels like every step is painful. It just feels like the next leg forward just feels like a burden. You just don't feel like you can even go one more step any further. In fact, you know you're supposed to be a follower of Jesus, but you say, man, this is hard. It's scary. I don't know what's going to happen next, and I don't even feel like I'm living up to what I'm supposed to be doing. How in the world am I a follower of Jesus? And that's where I think these people here, that they're watching him, and they're saying, he's amazing, but man, look at me following. I'm kind of afraid. But see, the challenge, I don't believe, is really about squashing fears and soothing our soul, because... In the, in the short amount of time I've been on this planet, I can promise you, give me five minutes, even if I'm in a good mood, give me five minutes and something else will come up. There'll be the next thing that comes down the pike. It's not, it's not a question of if you're going to deal with this, it's how and when you're going to deal. It's going to happen. So it's not a question of saying, well, I don't want to ever have any fears or ever have anything that bothers me. That's not the question. The challenge is keeping your eyes in the right position, keeping your eyes in the right place. Because what can happen is when you're in those, trudge, those drudgery, kind of trudging kind of trails, you know where I want to look? I want to look at my feet as it just takes one more step and I see the mud that my feet are in. But what this passage, I believe, is trying to get us to see, and I want to encourage you, is your, your flesh is going to constantly pull you down to notice the pain of each step. But the Savior is calling you to lift your eyes and to look at him as he confidently heads towards what he has already planned ahead of him. That's why he pulls his disciples aside in verse 32, the last part there. He takes, his, again, the 12. Those are the 12 disciples, and he begins to tell them what things would happen unto him. And I think that this reminder from Jesus to his disciples, the 12 disciples, should be a reminder to you, his disciples, his worldwide disciples, of the encouragement and the inspiration that he offers to those of us, and I believe there's probably more of you than you care to admit, who are a little weary in the way. That's what I think he's given to us. What he's given to these disciples here is the third. I already mentioned the other two in chapter 8, verse 31, and chapter 9, verse 31. This is the third of the prophecies of his, of his uh, uh, coming death and resurrection. He gives three prophecies. This is the third of them. And this one has a little more detail to it. If you go look at the others I mentioned, all he says is basically, I'm going to die and rise again. But here he gives a little more detail. He says in verse 33, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. He says, I'm going to be actually handed over to the religious people. They're going to take hold of me. They're going to do things to me. They're going to run me through a mock trial. That's what they're going to ultimately do. It's going to be a, a sham of a trial, but he says they're going to be delivered to them and, and to the scribes. And he says, they shall condemn him to death. They're going to actually find him guilty. That's what the, can you imagine? 
ever finding Jesus Christ guilty of anything? They're going to find him guilty, and the only way you can do that is to lie, and that's exactly what they did. But nonetheless, he says, I'm going to be handed over to these people. My own people are going to hand me over. What's not explicitly stated here, but I believe in part you can also see he knows that his own disciples are going to do this. Judas, one of his, the people that have followed him around, they're going to turn against him. But his own people, the Jewish nation, these people that if you look at what they taught and what they sung about and what they spoke about and what they prayed about, they were looking for a Messiah. Yet when he comes, what do they do? They turn him over to the cross, to the Romans to crucify him. So his own people are turning against him. But he also says, not only are they the, the chief priests and the scribes going to condemn him, he says, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles. Now, it's bad enough if your own people turn you away, but now he's actually going to the Gentiles, which are certainly non-Jewish people, people who are not the, the promised or blessed people of God. He said that's part of it, but to the Jewish mind, to the Jewish uh, heart, they would have said, the Gentile, that's somebody who's an outcast, a reject, a sinner. The terrible people out there. I mean, good gracious, not only are the good people turning him away, but the bad people are turning him away. They're rejecting him. You've got Judas who's portraying him, and you even have Peter. You remember Peter, what Peter did? He denies Jesus. And I believe that played, remember I told you Peter, I believe informed John Mark is what he's writing down, and I believe that plays into some of what you see here. Here's Peter saying, I was one of those that was going to deny him. I was. And what does Jesus do? In verse 34, not only do they reject him, but in verse 34, they shall mock him and scourge him, shall spit upon him. He endured hurt and shame and outright abuse. There's no two ways to look at what happened to Jesus other than what we would legitimately call abuse and miscarriage of justice. We would see it as a shame that anybody, any human being would treat another human being the way that Jesus Christ was treated. But everything that happened to him had been foretold even in the Old Testament. In Psalm 22, verse 6 and 8, 6 to 8, it says, this is the uh, psalmist speaking, but I believe the voice of the Messiah should be heard here. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of men. All they that shall see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head. Jesus knew that. Now, I want you to understand that Jesus knew that that was going to happen to him. I believe that he understood that absolutely. He actually, I believe, predestinated this to happen. This was something that was in his mind from the beginning of time. Yet we see him in verse 32 confidently walking towards it. He says, I'm going to take this shame and abuse. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my backs to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked, out, plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Here's Jesus Christ enduring very real, very painful, very intense physical and emotional abuse. He's rejected by everyone that loved him, or that should have loved him, rather. 
He's rejected by everyone that should have been seeing him as their only hope. And he further takes complete and utter abuse from them. And I'm telling you that because I want you to see, and I think this is what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, that Jesus is going to lead you through the shame and the rejection and even the abuse that you might have to endure. I never, do not hear me say, please do not take anything I'm saying to say that shame and abuse and all those things are right or good. I'm just saying that's the human condition. Some of us have had to endure some things that it ought not ever have to be endured by anyone. It's wrong, immoral, it is absolutely unconscionable that people have to, have to endure some of those things. But what Jesus is saying is that I, Jesus, have endured more than you could ever imagine. I know your pain. I know your shame. In fact, by my stripes you are healed, he says. Because I have done these things, I will lead you through the worst of the worst of the worst. I will lead you through it with my head up high. You may be having your head hang low. You may be sitting there crying. You may be in pain, but I'm going to have my head. This is Jesus talking. I'm going to have my head up high. I'm going to be leading you confidently through it. You can follow me through these things. Paul writes about it this way. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. He says, nay, in all these things, all of these things, the worst that can be thrown at a human being, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. What we need to do if we are truly disciples of Jesus I don't, I, I, I don't want you to, I got to say this, I don't want you to hear me say your pain isn't important, your shame or what happened to you is not important. That's not what I'm saying. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. I'm saying it's real and it hurts. And I understand on some level that what you're dealing with, nobody can understand. I understand that, okay? But what we have to do if we are disciples of Jesus is to stop focusing on the cause of our shame to stop causing on the thing that has hurt us and instead put your focus on him that has bore the shame for you because he is the one that will give you victory over that thing. He is the only one who can. Again, I'm not suggesting that what happened, you know, just put it out of your mind. That's foolish talk. The reality is there's scars that are deep. But you have to take your attention and quit putting it in the mud and pick your eyes up and put it to our Savior and say, I'm going to have victory through Christ. That's the only way that this victory will ever come. Because he suffered rejection and shame. You can look at him and follow after him. I believe the final words that Jesus says in this passage in verse 34, on the third day he shall rise again. I think those words haunted Peter. If you go to Mark chapter 14, I won't make you turn there, but you could look at it if you're interested. In Mark chapter 14, in verse 27 and 28, Jesus once again reminds his disciples that he would die and he would rise again. And in verse 29, Peter, 
there's a whole situation that's going on there, but Peter, as a response to that, he says, no, the whole world might forsake you, Jesus, but I'll never leave you. I'm never going to turn my back on you. He just swears up and down, I'll, you, I, you don't understand. The whole world's going to reject you before I will. And then just about 40 verses, 30, 40 verses later, in verse 72, that rooster crows, and it says Peter, he ran out of there in shame. I can imagine there were probably tears on his face that said, Lord, I'm sorry, I, you told me this would happen, and I've already denied you. I've already denied you. But these final words not only probably haunted Peter to some extent, the third day he shall rise again, they're also the final words that I think changed the world. Because had not Jesus Christ risen again, Peter would be defined, I believe, by a man who denied the one person who did more for him than anybody in this world. But you see, because Jesus rose again, we're not done with Peter. Peter shows up in Acts chapter 2 and preaches one of the best sermons you'll ever read in the Bible. Preaches a sermon that is the gold standard of what the sermons ought to be. You want to hear somebody preaching the gospel, you're going to read Acts chapter 2 and you're going to hear what Peter has to say. And it tells me that the Holy Spirit used that sermon to save thousands. Literally, I'm not exaggerating. This is not independent Baptist over-exaggeration foolishness. This is the Bible saying thousands of people were saved through the message that this man preached. And it's only possible because if you go back to read what Peter uh, preached on that day, he preached that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, you'll go back and look at the Acts and look at all of the sermons that are in there. There's about six or seven sermons in the book of the Acts. And you know what those men emphasize more than anything else? Yes, they recognize that Jesus died on the cross, but you know what they, they were clinging to, like, like their life depended on it because it absolutely did, is that Jesus rose from the dead. They saw that as their hope. Those men, every one of those apostolic sermons were about Jesus coming back from the dead. Because they knew that had not Christ been risen, their failures would define them. Their failures would do more than that, would doom them. They were on a path to destruction, but because Jesus rose again, we have hope. Paul says it this way, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. You're yet in your sins then they which are fallen asleep in Christ are perish, those that have died before us. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're all men most miserable. We're all in the worst possible position. We are all worthy of pity. That's what he's saying. But what you need to understand is that Jesus Christ, because he is the one who gives victory, he, gives, had, he had victory over death, hell and the grave he is the one that will lead us to the victory that you and i so desperately need my performance is going to let me down your performance will always let you down but jesus jesus single-handedly secured our victory by the way it had nothing to do with you it had everything to do with what he did on the cross when he was buried and he got up all by himself he didn't need you. In fact, you need him. 
He took care of it all. So what I need to do is I need to quit focusing on what I've done or not done, and I need to start focusing on where he's leading me. As the writer of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God, sitting there in victory. He's accomplished it all. You go back to verse 32, you've got these people who were amazed and these people who were afraid. I'll just be honest with you, I'm a follower of Jesus. I will, I'll admit that. I have no concerns or any equivocation about that. I follow Jesus. He is my Savior. I have my hope is in Jesus. But as a follower of Jesus, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid, and I'm just talking to you about what's, what's on my mind. I wrote down a whole long list of things. I've tried, I won't list, list all of them because y'all don't want to hear about all the stuff I'm afraid of, but I'm going to give you a few of them. I'm afraid of the lack of impact that I will make on this planet. I'm thinking about it. I'm 44 years old, which I know is not that old, but in terms of trying to be a, in ministry, there's only so many years you get, and it feels like time's getting short. Man, I don't feel like I've done enough. I'm afraid every time I get in this pulpit that am I not preaching with the power of God on my life. I'm afraid th throughout the week as I live that I will surrender to my lust or my sin or I... I'm all, I will have situations facing me. Just the other night, had a conversation, and I didn't handle it the right way. And I say, what in the world's wrong with you, man? What's wrong with you? I, I'm, I'm afraid of not appreciating what the God has given me, and he's given me a whole lot. I'm afraid of not being a great witness. One of the concerns I have at this moment in time is we're supposed to be followers of Jesus, and that means we're supposed to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. And to be honest with you, I'm having a hard enough time trying to keep up with you ones, and y'all are already saved, much less trying to go out and go get people out there that don't want to talk to somebody because they're afraid of a virus, and I, I don't want to give them anything. So, I mean, how are you going to deal with that? And I'm just telling you what I'm afraid of. Can I just tell you what I'm afraid of? That's what I'm worried about. How do you do that? I'm afraid of the pain that my children and your children and our grandchildren are going to suffer because of the direction this country is going in and the direction this culture is going in. I'm afraid of what that's going to look like. I'm afraid of, of, of not being able to help some of you in this church who have real problems, real emotional damage that has been done to you, whether it's your own fault or somebody else's fault. I'm afraid I can't do what you need me to do. I'm afraid of religious intolerance that this country seems to be building up, hating against churches all in the name of diversity and inclusion. And I appreciate diversity and inclusion as far as it goes, but to do so, to, to, to lift that above the supremacy of Christ and his church, I'm afraid this, this, this world is turning against us because of that. I'm afraid of this church, McConnell Road Baptist Church, becoming a dried-up husk of religious traditionalism as I've gotten into the history of this church, I mean, this, this, God has done a lot here at this church through the years. And I would hate to be known as the man who was at the helm when it went down. I could go on. There's a million other things. But all of those fears stem from the fact that Matthew Tilly, the man who's standing up here talking to you, is looking at his feet in the mud that I'm stepping in. 
and the hurt that it's feeling that it's putting in my body. I'm trying to follow Jesus, but I'm focused on how I'm following, not how he's leading. Now, that's a, it's a distinction. I hope that's not lost on you. It's a nuance. I understand that. But it makes the difference between having fear and being amazed. Because I look at me, and I do that a lot, it scares me to death. But if I can ever look at what he's done, if I can ever consider what he's about to accomplish, what he has promised to accomplish through his church, what he has promised to accomplish, what he has accomplished in, around, and through, and with us, if you just think about that for even half a minute, it'll shock you, it'll amaze you, that he uses people like you, people like me, to do his work, that he is allowing us to participate in this thousand multi two thousand year long activity that he has been doing that he allows us to do that so some of y'all need to stop carrying around your shame you got stop seeing it got, quit seeing it all about you quit seeing about what you're going to have and what you've got to do to fix the future i think too many of us myself included we carry around the weight of the world on our shoulders we need to see jesus is confidently heading towards his goal we just need to get in line behind him. Quit looking at our feet and look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. If you let Jesus go before you, you'll be amazed by his confidence, his power, his victory. Follow him, but don't focus on your footsteps. Focus on him. Thank you for joining us for Seeking Christ in the Scriptures, the teaching and preaching podcast from McConnell Road Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm Pastor Matthew Tilley, and I'm so glad you joined us here. But if you'd like to learn more about the church, please visit us online at mcconnellroadbaptist.org.